0: So as we pick up where we have left off so far in the uh, Noahic flood event, I, I want to jump up um, just prior to uh, what was read for you um, at beginning in verse 1 because I want to uh, read the entire text of 8, 1 through 5 in its context. Um, and that context helps gather kind of the thoughts that are going on with Noah and the events and so forth that flow in 8, 1 through 5. If we would just jump back up into verse 22 of chapter seven. So if you have a text, just look with me and then we'll proceed from there because it colors how we understand Noah in 8.1. If we just jump back up into verse 22, it says everything, just kind of a summary of the uh, floodwaters and, and, and how they, uh, the deluge has taken place and what's occurring. Verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing again and just as you're reading that and kind of putting that in, into your your mind and and, and and picturing it, just think of um, uh, the noise of people and industry and, and and animals and and just the regular noise that you'd be attuned to and um the deluge coming and wiping all of that out. That, that, that's what he's trying to communicate to you before you approach Noah. Is that you, you don't skip over everything is gone. And so uh, Moses uh, labors intensely for you to feel the weight of that. Really beginning um, the first comment being 21. And all flesh died. But then verse 22, again, where we were, everything on the dry land whose nostril was the breath of life died. In case you missed this statement in 21, everything is dead. Verse 22, everything is dead. Verse 23, he blotted out. That is, God blotted out. Not a few things, but everything. That was on the face of the ground. Again, the text is slowing down so much for you to just comprehend beginning in verse 21 what the flood event entailed so that you'll you'll you receive it um, the way it's meant to impress upon you verse 23 um again uh god blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground man animals creeping things birds of the heavens they were blotted out from the earth An interesting uh, feature, um, and this is uh, just an aside, an interesting feature as you look at the flood events and uh, how much um, uh, Moses records the animals being being blotted out, perhaps you question why, and and it would be in a sense of the devastation that man has brought, not just to fellow man, but to all of creation. They're suffering, and, and they're being blotted out. They're being utterly destroyed on account of man's wickedness. And it goes with the theme of our worship this morning as you looked at it. And again, we who think so little of sin, maybe take a second gaze to meditate on that again. And that's what Moses is trying to get you and I to do here. That sin is not performed in a vacuum. It doesn't just hurt the person who's performing it. Um, That's why we shouldn't think of it as just how it affects me. Because it never just affects you. Even if it's done uh, behind closed doors. And it's in isolation during the actual act. It has reverberations for all who are in a community with you. And at different levels of severity. But it never only affects you, ever. Um, So he's speaking here of animate life as being wiped out. And, And it would have been something for man to have that deluge start taking place. And him to see the animal suffering. And to know this creature is sharing in my lot. And it's sharing in my lot because of me. And the impact that that would have had on the individuals who are dying, the animals who are dying with them, and then Noah, as he is being saved from such destruction, looking on as it is occurring to fellow friend and kin uh, and to animals alike. So it goes on. um, The text says at the end of verse 23, only Noah was left. And then, again, Noah is the federal head of his family. God has covenanted with Noah, and therefore, so also, those who were with him. That is, notice how the text says only Noah was left. He's the principal of the covenant, only Noah. And, and there was a few others. Well, why were they there? Because they're with Noah, and they're in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred 50 days. You see, that's where we're going to pick up this morning uh, as we transfer to verse 1. But consider just for a moment the statement with me that the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The picture at the end of the text of 7, at the end of 7 prior to 8-1, is that after this phenomenally catastrophic event, and there's no other way to characterize it, it was absolutely phenomenologically catastrophic to the entire earth. Noah and his covenant family alone are now at quiet rest upon the waters for a period of 110 more days. I want to draw your attention to what I think is an important thing for us to observe. And I think it's written for our instruction. And it's particularly the role of time. And how we're being instructed in the role and function of time throughout the Noahic story. You see, remember, whether we were in Luke's gospel and working through the text in Luke, we understood then and we understand in every narrative. Whether you're in your Old Testament text or your New Testament text, whenever you're reading a narratival story, characters, character development, again, remember, always remember, it's not just that a story is being told. It's how the story is being told. It's communicating through every pass significant things for you to contemplate and meditate upon for your instruction and for your edification, for hope, for rebuke, for repentance, for nourishment. It's not just... I read a story, and that was interesting. I read every bit and piece and movement of that story because each piece is written to have an impact on my life. For me to pause and to meditate upon, it's instructive value for my soul. And I think that time in this event is serving in that way. That it was written and marked 40 days, 40 nights. Seven days, six days. Waited another seven days. Tenth month, eighth month, 150 days. It's not so that we can chart out the calendar. It's so that we'll be impacted by the significance of time. Like, for instance... Beginning earlier in chapter 7, you see in verse 4, if you look at verse 4 in chapter 7, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And then verse 10 of the same chapter, and after seven days. You see, we don't just learn, for instance, here with seven days that God is going to send rain in seven days because he just doesn't want to send it in six days. So when he tells Noah in seven days. He's, he, he, Noah's like, well, why can't it be four? It, it's not that, no, no, I'm not telling you just I'm picking arbitrary dates. But rather, what do we gain from understanding that God is picking these units of seven days. I'm going to send water. Well, at minimum, we learned that God works orderly that's simple to receive how so because he's working even according to a weekly cycle we're instructed in that noah then mirrors that in his own life of industry or whether we go back to the creation narrative and we look at a day and night and a day and a night and a day and a night and we go oh how many and then the one weekly unit and then there's a sabbath God is working in an orderly fashion. He is, he is creating an analog for us to understand, to, to, to function in an orderly fashion as well. He's, he's providing us uh, example and example. And what do we find Noah doing? Look if you look at the instruction for time into Noah in chapter 8. Look at verse 10 of chapter 8. He waited another seven days. And this is after the flood, and we'll get to the flood events. But I'm just showing you how the time is instructional. We see Noah acting in the same manner after God. In seven days, I'm going to send rain. A weekly unit, seven days. Oh, there's a weekly cycle, some sort of order and structure inherent even to these events. So also, Noah, he waited another seven days, verse 10. And then if you look down at verse 12, just quickly, he waited another seven days sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Further, time serves throughout this text as a means of the vindication of God's righteousness and judgment. Think about that. Time serves as a means for us, the reader, to understand God's vindication as a righteous judge. How so? You remember as we looked last week as he sent the deluge and he says there in verse 4 of chapter 7 it's coming for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. We have to ask the question why 40 days and 40 nights? And last week we briefly answered it and it was simply this. God chose to bring devastating rains for 40 days and 40 nights rather than destroying all mankind in a single moment to vindicate his own righteousness and judgment because man who was preparing to drown was compelled to say the God we scorned is now showing us that he is our judge and that his mighty hand is too strong for us. See, we would never argue that God could not have wiped man out in a single moment like that. That he could have done any number of ways of which he chose. He could simply have ceased to allow man to exist. Or he could have brought a, 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 a series of heart attacks that everyone just receives one. Boom, done. And there could be some sort of autopsy. We say, oh, they all died by a heart attack. Or whatever. Any which way he could have ended human civilization in a moment. And he chose not to do so. And we have to ask why. For why do the flood rains last 40 days and 40 nights? It is that man might look upon his own wickedness. And understand that God is vindicated in his righteousness. In his judgments against our sin. And he is wholly just in all of his punishments. But if we move, rather, to what we learn about a seven-day increment of time, that is that God works in an orderly fashion, and so also do we, after that same paradigm that he set forward in seven-day week units, or whether we consider how he brought destruction to mankind through time and the passing of time for 40 days and 40 nights, consider with me now as we move to the text there at the end of chapter 7 how we are or why we are directed to consider time, that the waters prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. Again, look at verse 24 at the end, or, or 23, everything is gone. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now, if we think of why is the water prevailing upon the earth 150 days, and you have to understand it from the standpoint that the rains have fallen, right? The the rains are falling in this this complete unit of 150 days. So you have rains falling in 40 days and 40 nights. Rains, deluge, the the, 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 uh, waters of the the abyss underneath the deep waters, so to speak, they begin coming up. The, The rivers are falling from the sky. A deluge takes place. That's 40 days and 40 nights, now, at the end of that 40 days and 40 nights, as we have just covered, God has proven himself effectively to be a righteous judge. <clears throat> the rains were unremitting, and everyone has drowned. We covered that. Everything is dead. Everything is dead. Everything is dead. Everything is dead. Okay, case closed. Vindication and righteousness. Righteousness. If that is the case, then why is the water continuing to prevail for two, three, even four months later? What is Noah left to think? If the deluge waters have have ceased to fall, but the waters prevail for a hundred and 50 days in total. So you're looking at 110 more days of the waters increasing and prevailing. Noah knows, right, from earlier in chapter 7 and the content of the covenant, Noah knows that he has escaped the deluge. He has escaped the destruction. I will make my covenant with you and, and your family with you. And you are to get on the ark and you will be rescued from the deluge. And destruction is not to your family but my covenant. Destruction is to everything else. So Noah knows now the waters have come and vindicated God's righteousness and Noah and his family are safe on the ark. But the waters continue to increase. And, and I, I think that we, we do well to meditate on that for a moment because it leaves Noah to question what's occurring to him and his family for 110 days because God did not speak to him that we know of for that period of time. And then it rightly helps us understand our own sense of frustrations when we often want to pursue a prayer with the Lord, feel that it's been answered, and it needs to be answered quickly. Or we somehow have excuse or grounds for acting rebellious, pursuing our own path. Because, again, God is not listening, God is not here, God hasn't answered. And it speaks to our own impatience and how quickly we become frustrated with the Lord. And what a short view we have on everything. That this cause and effect has to happen like this. Or I begin simply to doubt. Perhaps I doubt so deeply that I doubt that this is even real. Why? Well, I've been sad now one week. Here is Noah in the silence floating about in the ark with his family, and the waters continue to increase with silence for the better part of 110 days. If we were to put that in our time, I just simply typed in um, uh, 40 days from today. That would give you a date of April 30th. April 30th, 2019. The rains begin to fall. Okay? So now you're thinking of yourself in this context. 40 days ago, let's say today the rain stops. 40 days ago, would be April 30th, the rains began. Torrential downpours wiped everybody out for 40 days and 40 nights. Here we are, the rain just stopped. And we think, good, we're getting off the boat. It's over. Everything is devastated. We alone are saved as promised. No. We'll continue to see a water. the waters increase until Uh, 110 days from now, which will be September 27th. What are we left to think during that time? 40 days of silent rain, 110 days of water prevailing in silence. Calvin notes this about the scenario. He says, being human, Noah was certainly gripped by many cares and much anguish. and rehashed many times everything that had happened. Here he is floating on a boat, a large one at that packed with animals and his closest family. They made it through the deluge, but are the waters increasing only for us to die in a different way? Again, he knows the certainty that he would not face destruction of the deluge. And he didn't. But what becomes of us now? So the question that we have to ask about the time of 150 days is simply this, and I want you to consider it with me. What is Noah to do when it feels that he is in a period of God's absence? That's the, that's the thought-provoking question, hopefully, that we will meditate on as we consider such a text, that we're learning about 150 days for a reason, and so is Noah. What is Noah to do in what feels to be a 110-day period or a 150-day period of God's absence? The answer is this, and it's quite simple to say, but it's increasingly and incredibly, I should say, hard to do. He must battle his own understanding. Again, you have to take time to consider this because it's a very real person, a very real scenario, facing a very real significant challenge. What must I do during a long drought in my own spiritual life? What must I do In a providential difficulty, when I feel like I'm not being heard or God is not near, what must I do? What measurable action can I take? And the answer is the same as it was for Noah. You must battle your own understanding and exercise faith in the unchangeable promises of God. You must battle, I must battle, Noah must battle his own understanding and exercise faith in the unchangeable promises of God, though they seem to be in absolute jeopardy. The waters are increasing. I was, I was, I was surprised. I, but with you, Noah, I'm going to make a covenant. And, and with you and, and your sons and then your sons' wives and your wife, I'm going to make a covenant. Get in the ark, Noah. I'm bringing rains in seven days. I'm in the ark. The animals are in the ark. And the ark takes float. It's up. 40 days, everything is gone. Okay, it's over. No, it isn't. You continue upon the seas in silence from April 30th all the way to, what, June 9th? Yes. And and then from June 9th, we're going to go all the way to September 27th when we thought it was already accomplished. My mind now is turning because what was otherwise predictable to me has now become utterly unpredictable. And what must I do with my, my feelings at that moment when life is absolutely unpredictable? There are many moving parts, so what do I do with them? Do I interpret them in my own understanding? I think this is the instruction of 150 days. That's why we're told the story of the waters prevailing for 150 days that when we are assailed in our faith by any number of measures, when we are in a desert spiritually, when we are in times of trial, we are in times of perplexing thought, not knowing up for down, left for right. Nearly in the Christian experience driven to think that God's promises to us as glorious as they were, have all been nullified. And the evidence of their nullification is the desert wasteland that I'm in. What are we to do? We are to trust in the Lord with all our heart do what with our understanding, don't lean on it. Not lean on our own understanding, but believe that he will make straight your path. This is the meaning of 150 days upon the waters for Noah and his family. And then the Lord does what Proverbs promises, that God will make straight the path. He does so for Noah. Notice verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And he remembered all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. You see, notice carefully what the text does not say. And we have to get this right, which we got it right earlier in chapter 7. But we need to be reminded of it here in 8.1. That the text does not say, and and it's, it's important that we grasp this that the text does not say that God remembered Noah's righteousness or that God remembered Noah's obedience. Again, not that obedience or righteousness are unimportant. God remembered Noah, and he was a righteous man, and he was, again, a a just man, and, and he walked with God and cared for neighbor, and he did all that God commanded. That's carefully written for us to understand that Noah was a man of great obedience. Noah was, otherwise, a righteous individual, and those pieces in our lives as well are important. It's not that unconditional election is enough. I just go my own way. Again, righteousness, integrity, and obedience in the Christian life does matter. And so we're told. And he did all that God commanded. Noah did all that the Lord commanded. That's an important piece of Noah's portrait. But one's obedience and integrity is never the ground's. For being remembered. It, it, it's not the cause for God's remembering. So that you could scale your obedience and scale your integrity and scale it against your failures and then figure out if you'll be remembered. Because the text clearly portrayed Noah as a very obedient and righteous man, but it left it out very clearly here when he was remembered. God remembered Noah. Not something about Noah. As some would say, the ark was not christened the USS performance. You see, the point being made is it when all appears helpless? Again, we, we can almost look at Noah in a, in a Job-type fashion, read the text almost in a Job-type fashion, right? Where like, we know the, the remaining story. Noah had this sense of preservation from the deluge, and it has occurred. And we're like, oh, Noah knew he was going to float there for another 110 days in silence. He knew that. No, we have no record of that. It's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and justice will be served. And then he continued to Watch the waters prevail and increase for another 110 days. But God remembers him. Because the point being made here is that when all appears helpless, God is mindful of us. And he is ready and poised in due time to give clear evidence. That he is near. Um, The English poet William Cooper, perhaps you've heard this before, read it in his biography. It's very significant. William Cooper, the English poet, wrote a poem, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, and he wrote it in 1773. hear what he says in this poem. He says, quote, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Think about that, just that. And I won't stop all the way along the way. I'll try to keep myself going. But let every word fall in the weight of what he's saying about your own providential life and your experience with the Lord. It's what we're seeing with Noah. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. As to Noah, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Finally, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And it is this aspect of fresh courage take, and God's sovereignty, and his making it plain in times of great trial or drought is evidenced here in the text in verse 8, 1, in the last section. Notice how God makes it plain to Noah Verse 1, just recall, but God remembered Noah. He remembered him. And the evidence of such remembering, while Noah was sitting in the ark while the waters were prevailing for, on the earth for 150 days, God remembered him. And the evidence of his making it plain that he indeed is remembered by the one who matters most is there in 8.1. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were, notice the text, restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. So you have a rough structure of two and a half months there that he, that he stayed after the ark had hit the mountain ridge. Um, he stayed there roughly two and a half more months. And then on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Just notice the text as we kind of wind down our time. God blew a wind over the earth in evidence to Noah that he was remembered. And notice the way that the waters respond to the wind of God. They subsided, they were restrained, they receded, they abated, and they abated all the way to the end. You see, just as God sent the waters upon the earth in judgment, he now sends them back to their proper place he sends the oceans back to their edges the waters back to the skies and the clouds so that the water remains where he sovereignly placed it above the sky and below the earth what are we to receive from this you see when Noah was sitting there wondering has God forgotten us What will become the end of our family now that we have survived the deluge? What is to become of us as we sit upon the waters in this ark? The drying winds reminded Noah that the flood wasn't a freak of nature, but it was from commencement to completion a work governed by God for his welfare and salvation think of that in our own lives, that many things take place in our lives that are very complex and very hard to deal with, things that we're frustrated by, easily discouraged and feel overwhelmed with, In that way perhaps we could think of them as careening out of control, almost like floodwaters. Doubt and despair can set in for a season of what feels to be immense silence. And then as we said, God is poised to send a drying rain to meet us where our need is so that we would once again be refreshed upon him knowing that from commencement to completion all the things in my life are sent and governed by God not to his abandonment of me but for my own welfare and salvation. You see, this is, as I conclude with you, this is how we understand Paul's words in Romans 8. He could have written it during the flood of Noah. Listen to the text. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord let us pray Father we thank you for the word of God, that you've provided it to us, your people, to gather on Lord's day to once again be nourished, confronted, reoriented, nourished.